0: It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling Tales for Dark night. Good evening listener, you're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's edition, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with two audio adaptations of frightening fiction about hellacious habits and sufferable solitude. Well, folks, here we are. The beginning of 2023. I wonder what horrors await us this year. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of Flickr and X-Ragoon X-24, Our voice talents Felipe Ojeda, Danielle Hewitt, Nick Goroff, Trevor Rines, and Ken Sampsel. Now, get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our theater of the minds and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Our first tale of the evening is written by Flickr, and is performed by Felipe Ojeda, Danielle Hewitt, Nick Goroff, and Trevor Rhines. In it, we'll meet a young man named Jack. Jack has a problem with smoking, and it seems to be ruining his life. But after he visits a strange-looking store, he buys a package of cigarettes that seems to be a little more different than usual. So without further ado I present to you where's the
1: smoke a dark place that's where Jackson McCormick loved to be it made him feel safe and helped hide a secret but it wasn't a normal secret like kissing a girlfriend in a closet or trying to take sexy pictures of himself no jack didn't care for that what he cared about was smoking a cigarette which was actually what he was doing. The closet where he was hiding smelled like cigarette smoke, and he coughed hard because of that smoke. Jack sighed softly, thinking about why he'd got to this point. He never wanted to smoke, but everywhere Jack had been or had gone, he saw people smoking, and one day he figured out he should try it for himself. And that's where the problems began. Instead of buying groceries or important stuff, he would buy cigarettes of any kind he could lay his hands on. Just then, the closet door swung open, and Jack's mother, a nice blonde-haired lady, stood there with a dark glare on her face and her arms crossed.
2: Jackson, what on earth are you doing?
1: His mother snapped at him. He looked away from his mother. He didn't want to tell her. He knew she already knew. Jackson's mom grabbed him under his arm before taking him out of the closet and marching him into the living room. Then his mother threw him onto the couch, ripped the cigarette from Jack's hand, and blew it out.
2: I thought we agreed you wouldn't do this anymore,
1: Miss McCormick said, holding up the cigarette. Jack knew he couldn't stop because he had been doing his smoking ever since his dad died. When Jack was 18, his dad died in a car crash, and he felt horrible seeing his mother upset and knowing his dad wouldn't see him grow up anymore.
2: Jack, you are 21 years old, and you're still freaking smoking. I hate the house smelling like smoke.
1: Miss McCormick snapped at her son. Well, you shouldn't have let Dad drive the car when he was drunk. Jack shouted at his mother. Miss McCormick gasped at what Jack had said, and even seemed shocked. Jack stood up from the couch and headed out the room. His mother followed him, explaining that she was sorry, but he didn't care. He just shrugged her off, saying that he would be home later. And Then he walked out the front door, slamming the door behind himself. It's not my fault. None of this is. Jack mumbled as he walked down the street. He headed to the park. It had a place in his heart, a dark place, because it was where he had had his first cigarette. The day seemed clear in Jack's mind. He and a couple of friends were hanging out at the park when a few broke out a pack of cigarettes. When they asked if Jack wanted one, he said no at first. But after some peer pressure, he took one and started smoking it. The first time he sucked in the smoke, it made him cough, and his friends laughed at him. But after the first one, Jack got used to it, and then all the rest was history. When Jack sat on a bench, he pulled out a pack of cigarettes from his jacket pocket. Shit, he hissed when he realized the pack was empty. He then remembered he had used the last one in the closet. So instead, he just decided to sit on the bench and let the outdoor noises fill his ears. Maybe his life would be better if he wasn't alive. Maybe his mom would be happier if Jack had died along with his dad. A few hours later... Jack stood up and decided to head home. But first, he wanted to stop by the store and grab another pack. As he was walking, Jack suddenly stopped and looked up. He noticed he was standing in front of a small grocery store. Without another word, Jack walked into the store and looked around. It was dusty and old-looking inside. Jack noticed spiderwebs in the corners, and then Jack thought he saw a rat run past his feet. When he got to the front counter, he noticed no one was there, but Jack noticed a silver bell sitting there. Hello? Jack shouted out loud. No one answered, so Jack hit the bell, ringing it. He waited. Then an older man appeared from nowhere. Welcome to Supernatural Stuff. I'm your wonderful shopkeeper, Mr. Knight.
0: How may I help you, man?
1: The man asked, grinning. Jack didn't say anything. He was just looking at the man. He had black and gray hair, one eye completely white, and he was wearing all black. Um, uh, do you have any cigarettes? Jack asked nervously. Yes, I do. Mr. Knight replied with a smile. A few seconds later, Mr. Knight placed a pack of cigarettes in front of Jack, which the young man picked up. The box was white and gold, and then Jack noticed in black bold letters the words PLEASURE on the front of the box right in the middle. Do you like them? Mr. Knight asked in a mysterious voice. Jack just nodded. He reached into his pocket and pulled out his wallet, ready to pay the man. Oh no, young man. They are free of charge. Just think of it as a gift from me to you. Mr. Knight said, holding up his hands. I don't have to pay you? Jack asked, confused. No, you don't, young man. But I would wait until you got home to use them. Mr. Knight said. Jack nodded before looking down to put the cigarettes in his pocket. And then when he looked up, Mr. Knight was gone. Huh? Where did he go? Jack mumbled under his breath. But he didn't think about it, and then headed home, thinking about what had happened in the store. When he got home, he heard talking and laughing and growled under his breath. His mom's friends were over, probably chatting and drinking tea like they always did. So he headed to his room, where he shut the door behind himself and sat on the edge of his bed. Jack pulled out the strange cigarettes, looking at them, wondering what Mr. Knight meant by what he said. Jack opened the pack and pulled out the cigarette. He noticed it looked like a normal one, which confused him. He lit the cigarette and started smoking it. When Jack blew the smoke out of his mouth, he noticed it was black. Huh? Jack mumbled. Jack coughed hard, rolled his eyes, and then started smoking it. And a minute later, he was done. Jack sighed softly thinking about going downstairs to see his mom's friends, but he didn't want them to smell smoke on him. Jack then felt tired. He looked up. His brain felt like it was going numb, and he looked at the pack that was sitting next to him on the bed. I need another one, Jack said without emotion in his voice. When Jack blinked, he jumped off his bed, breathing heavily. The box of cigarettes was laying all over the ground. He placed a hand on his chest and noticed that he felt like a zombie for a short time, which worried him. There was a knock on his bedroom door, and Jack gasped before picking up the cigarettes.
2: Honey, are you doing okay?
1: He heard his mom ask him. Jack didn't say anything after picking up the box and all the cigarettes. He hid them in his sock drawer before his mom could come in. Then he opened the bedroom door and smiled weakly at his mom, who looked worried. Uh, hi, Mom. You okay? Jack asked, smiling again at her.
2: I came to ask if you were okay. Did you calm down?
1: Miss McCormick said. Jack nodded and yawned. He felt tired and then rubbed his eyes, wanting to fall asleep.
2: Honey, are you sure you're doing well? You look really tired.
1: Miss McCormick asked, sounding concerned. Mom, chill. I'm fine. Maybe I just need to get some, uh, shut-eye, and I'll feel better in the morning, Jack explained to his mom. Without another word, Jack shut his bedroom door, kicked his shoes off, and then fell asleep on his bed with his clothes on. A few hours later, Jack bolted upright and looked around, confused at first, then rubbed his eyes. It was dark in his room, and dark outside. He grabbed his phone that was on the nightstand and looked at the time. It was three in the morning, and Jack was confused, making the phone fall out of his hand. Man, I slept like a log, Jack mumbled under his breath. Then he thought about going downstairs to eat something and getting a glass of water to wash it down his throat. He got out of bed and headed downstairs, noticing his mom was sleeping in her room, too. Jack then got into the kitchen with the small overhead light on, turned on the sink faucet, getting him a glass of water. Jackson a voice behind him said. Jack turned around with the glass in his hand. He expected to see his mom standing there, but no one was there. Suddenly, Jack heard something breathing heavily behind him, and he felt confused.
2: Don't you want another one?
1: A voice whispered in his ear. Jack jumped out of fear and dropped the glass on the ground, which caused it to shatter. A few seconds later, Jackson heard footsteps, and his mom ran into the room and stopped when she saw the glass all over the floor.
2: Jackson McCormick, what on earth did you do?
1: His mom shouted. I don't know. I was just getting a glass of water, and then something whispered in my ear. And then I dropped the glass. Jack explained, looking around. The next morning, Jack was sitting on the couch. He had an argument with her about the glass, and then when he had told her what had happened, she didn't believe him. What happened last night? Jack mumbled under his breath while rubbing the back of his neck. Jack heard his mom talking on the phone, probably with one of her friends, and he sighed quietly. Then, without another word, he stood up, headed out of the house, and headed to his spot in the park. He took out the pleasure cigarettes and examined it, Attempting to figure out how it worked, Jack started trying to break into it, unroll it, but he stopped. He had the same feeling wash over him the first time he had smoked one of the cigarettes. I can't hurt the product, Jack said in a dazed voice. He looked at his hands and stopped messing with the cigarette. He lit the cigarette up, sticking it in his mouth like he always did. He was smoking looking at the ground, wondering what had happened to him last night, and he coughed hard again. (coughs) Jack stopped when he heard laughter. He looked up and noticed a little girl standing in front of him, all black.
2: Hello, Jackie. Do you want to play with me?
1: She asked, grinning at him. I just... Jack cut himself off and stared at the girl. Suddenly, the little girl started laughing. At first it was cute, then it started getting darker and more evil. Then the girl coughed and threw up black goo, which was coming out of her mouth and nose. She then lunged at Jack, which caused him to scream in fear, and he fell off the bench and landed on the ground. The girl was on top of him. Her eyes were completely black now. The black liquid was running stop. down her face and out of the corners of her mouth.
2: Get off of me.
1: The black liquid was dripping onto Jack, and some landed on his cheek, which caused him to scream in pain because it was hot.
2: Only one a day. Remember that.
1: The girl hissed at him. More black liquid landed on his face, and he cried out in fear, telling the girl to stop and leave him alone. Please, but she me just you, kept me. laughing darkly. Stop. More black liquid hit Jack's face, and he cried out in pain. Then the little girl giggled, and when Jack opened his eyes, the girl was gone. Jack immediately jumped up, dusted himself off, and rubbed his cheek. It hurt, and he knew it hurt. Jack then ran home, and when he got into his house, he leaned against the wall, breathing heavily. Jack hoped his mom was still at work but she walked into the front hall and was wearing an apron, which confused Jack.
2: Jackson, where did you go?
1: Miss McCormick looked confused. Jack didn't say anything. He noticed there was flour on his mom's apron and he tried to cover the burnt part of his cheek.
2: Oh my God, what happened to your cheek?
1: Miss McCormick cried out, running over to her son. Jack's mother grabbed Jack by the face and gently touched the burnt area. Jack groaned under his breath, and his mom looked worried. Mom, Jack said, looking at her. Miss McCormick wasn't listening. She was trying to fix the accident on Jack's cheek. Jack tried to get his mom's attention, but it didn't worry her. She was complaining to him about his accident. Mom, leave me alone, Jack shouted, shoving his mother away from him.
2: Jackson, what on earth are you doing?
1: Miss McCormick asked. What are you doing? I'm not a baby anymore. Stop treating me like one. I'm fine. I've already told you I'm fine. Jack shouted at her. Jack headed for the stairs and his mom followed behind him, talking without stopping. Mom, shut up! Jack yelled at her so loudly it hurt his throat. Jack then headed to his room and slammed the door before sitting on his bed and he growled under his breath. Just then, the door was thrown open, and Miss McCormick was standing there with a glare on her face. Before Jack could say anything, she walked over and grabbed him by the ear, which caused him to cry out and shout.
2: We are going to the doctor, young man, and you aren't going to argue with me or I'm grounding you until you're 30.
1: Miss McCormick shouted. Then she took Jack outside and shoved him into the car, and Jack noticed his mom somehow didn't have the apron on. Please, Mom. Jack was cut off when his mom glared at him, and Jack looked away as they were driving. Jack looked out the window, rubbing his burnt cheek. He was trying to think of who that little girl was. Both McCormick's were in the main doctor's office a few minutes later, and Jack rubbed his aching ear. Then he was called back into the checkup area, and his mom told him she would stay back there, listen to the doctor. When he got there, The assistant told Jack to wait in the room until the doctor came, and he nodded. But right when the lady left, Jack got up, ran out of the room, and silently walked down the hall, hoping no one would see him. Jack ran down the hall until he found a door open and ran into the room. He went into the empty checkup room, then he shut the door and sat on the checkup bed. I can't take this anymore. I just can't. He said, breathing heavily. Then he stuck his hand in his jacket pocket, stopped, and pulled something out of his pocket. Jack opened his hand, and sitting in the palm was a pleasure cigarette. How the heck? I didn't even have one in my pocket. Jack said in a shocked tone. Jack reached into his other pocket and pulled out the hidden lighter. He knew it was his because it had the baseball picture on the front. Two. A voice hissed in his ear. Jack then remembered what the little girl had said. Only one a day. He figured it must have meant only one of those strange daily cigarettes. Jack felt weary as he looked at the cigarette. His head started hurting, and he felt like passing out. Suddenly, the door opened, and Jack looked up and saw a doctor standing there, looking at the clipboard. When she looked up, she saw Jack standing there. Who are you? The lady asked Jack. He jumped, and the cigarette flew out of his hand. And then he looked at the lady, not knowing what to say. Get! Her, a voice hissed into Jack's ear. Jack suddenly jumped at the doctor, and she screamed out of fear and shock. But Jack covered her mouth and grinned at her. A dark grin crossed his face. Be quiet. "'They won't care if you die,' Jack said in a dazed voice. Jack took his hand off the lady's mouth and then headed for her neck, starting to choke her.
2: "'Please let me go, young man,'
1: the lady said, sounding worried. Just then, the front door busted open, and a few security guards and a different doctor were in the room. Jack looked up at them, and everyone gasped in shock and surprise because Jack's eyes were completely black.' Young man! Stop this nonsense right now! The other doctor shouted. A few minutes later, Jack was back home in his room, laying on his bed. He felt sick, and that's what the doctor had told his mom. Jack had thrown up twice, and his mom had made him hot tea to calm his throat, but it only made him feel worse. Miss McCormick came into the room to check on her son's temperature and was shocked.
2: You were burning up. I have no clue what's happening to you. Maybe you're getting a virus, which is why you're acting so strangely.
1: Miss McCormick explained. Mom, there's something I need to tell you. Jack said, sounding weak.
2: What is it, honey? Do you feel better?
1: Miss McCormick asked him. I... I... actually... Jack stopped and grabbed his head in pain. He screamed in pain, too. And Miss McCormick gasped and ran over to the side of the bed, telling her son to calm down. Then Jack calmed down, and he actually fell asleep, and his mother kissed him on the forehead and walked away from the room. Then Jack suddenly woke up and jumped up, heading into the bathroom. He felt like he needed to throw up. He got to his toilet, and then he let it out. (laughs) When he was done, he wiped his mouth. And when he looked down... He gasped. His mess was pure black, like the goo that had come out of the girl's mouth. And then he let it out again. And then something else came out of his mouth. And Jack looked down into the toilet. And his eyes went wide in shock. He pulled a tooth out of the toilet bowl and stood up. He felt inside his mouth and felt the one missing spot where the tooth had come from. "What the hell?" Jack said, sounding completely terrified. He went into his room and opened his sock drawer. The cigarette box was gone. Jackson looked around and he noticed the cigarette box was on his bed, and he ran over to it, grabbing the box off the bed. When he looked inside, he noticed there was only one left. He was a bit shocked. Jack then grabbed his lighter and had an idea. He headed downstairs and out of the house. He didn't hear his mother shouting his name, and then he stopped at the corner and grabbed the cigarette. One more, he said, grinning darkly. Jack then lit it and sucked the good stuff from the cigarette, and then when he took it out of his mouth, he laughed loudly. (laughs) But it was a dark laugh coming from Jack's mouth, but he didn't care. It felt too good to stop anything. (laughs) Then he threw the cigarette and stomped it with his bare foot. He didn't care that it burned his foot. Jack just stood there thinking about something and shoved an empty pack into his pocket. It's time, Jack mumbled under his breath. Jack then noticed a big 18 wheeler heading down the road near where he was. And then, without thinking, Jack walked into the middle of the road and stood there with his back to the truck. Everyone will be happy, Jack said, feeling better about his life and everything else. He heard the horn from the truck, but didn't turn around or do anything else. He just stood there, ready to die. Then Jack blacked out, and he felt his mind and feelings slipping away. He felt the ground beneath him, probably dead or bleeding. Jack groaned under his breath, and when he opened his eyes, he was staring at the ceiling and the lights were blinding him. He's awake. Jack heard someone shout. When Jack opened his eyes, he saw his mother and two police officers smiling gently at him. What's going on? Jack asked as he sat up in the hospital bed. You're lucky to be alive, young man. You apparently walked out into the middle of the street and almost got hit by a truck. A police officer said.
2: And then the doctors and EMTs found a box of cigarettes on you.
1: Miss McCormick said, sounding concerned. Jack told everyone in the room what had happened to him while messing with the pleasure cigarettes. Well, we actually found out that those cigarettes had an experimental drug in them, and you were the first victim of it. The other cop explained. A few days later, Jack was out of the hospital, sitting in his house's living room, when he smiled. Jackson actually quit smoking for the first time, and he actually felt happy. And then he looked over and saw his mom reading a book. The doorbell rang, and both McCormick's looked at each other puzzled. Jack got up and headed for the front door, and when he opened the door and looked around, no one was at the door. He then looked down and noticed something on the ground. It was a bottle of wine, and he picked it up. Glamour, the bottle said.
2: Jack, who was at the door?
1: Miss McCormick asked. The only sound heard was that of the wine bottle being opened.
3: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I
0: I hope you enjoyed Where's the Smoke? as written by Flickr and voiced by Felipe Ojeda, Danielle Hewitt, Nick Goroff, and Trevor Rhines. Felipe Ojeda is a very talented voice actor as well as producer. You can hear more of his work right here on our very own network. If you enjoyed Danielle's performance, you can hear more of her on the Chilling Tales YouTube channel, where she holds the third place championship title for 2019's Evil Idol competition. You'll also find more of her work on the Wicked Library and Creepy Podcast at www.creepypod.com. Trevor Rhimes, quote, sounds like a dragon, like a landslide, like a force of nature. According to one Evil Idol fan, a Toronto-based voice actor since 2005, his low, rumbling voice has been heard on TV, radio, film, documentaries, audio dramas, podcasts, old-time radio play reenactments, and narrating on stage with orchestras. In under a year, he performed in all of Shakespeare's plays. Voice actor in 2016 Evil Idol champion Nick Goroff's talents can be found on our very own Chilling Tales for Dark Knights YouTube channel, as well as on past episodes of the Simply Scary Podcast. You can also join Nick on his YouTube channel, Wizard of Cause. Our second tale of the evening comes to us from author X Ragoon X24 and is performed by Ken Samso. A lone figure sets out once again into the dead of night, determined to re-perform a sacrilegious ritual in an attempt to conjure forth God or some other being from the blackness. Now, without further ado, I present to you A Barren Night and A Nightwalk in
4: Oblivion. The time read quarter to two, and he was still gripped with the heat of urgency. He didn't have one solid justification preventing himself from rushing headlong towards the task conclusion, for his will edged on the brink of collapse. Prolonging the wait worsened the tensions, but he did not wish to go forth with trembling hands and a fallible reason, as they made poor shackles upon the bolt of his desires. To him, it was a duty though no one set the charge, and in his composure, he wanted to hold in some manner to that of a devoted man. He wasn't good being one, nor could he pretend like religious men do, for he gripped his spade firmly, shoveling dirt onto the grave of his shadow, making desperate attempts to cover the deep gap where his talons continued to breach the surface. With that, he knew somewhere, someone wept. In the dark folds of his apartment, he focused on the metal fetish lying in his hand as amber from outside collided with its edge, serving to help fuel his impatience. A long, firm braided string of leather held the totem as he traveled about, its length hiding the object's significance away from the eyes of our world, for it wasn't his own. He would not go out of his way to purchase such a token, for doing so would reveal a devotion which he scarcely had. If he ever did at any point in his life, though he wasn't devoid of faith, holding it up, he saw the decades' worth of scratches that plagued the surface of the silver, along with a faded outline that still held the form of the lost martyr. The tip of the stem broke off recently, making it resemble a T. Yet he wouldn't discard it. He planned to keep hold of the fetish, even if it became a smooth hunk of ore. Once it was a pile of dust, he would carry them until the moment a gust would dispense their molecules to the four corners of the cosmos. Till then, he prayed for the day an answer would bestow itself onto his feeble soul. But for now, his only hope is to find some crutch out there in the darkened world. The time read quarter to two when he finished performing the infinite resolution on the comfortable spread of his bed. Reaching for the door, he threw on his outdoor attire, trying not to betray his calmness, and left with a hefty weight bearing down across his shoulder. The night touched his mood, helping to elevate the sense of dread and despair he clung to in his composure. He set the bag in the trunk and drove the car out of its spot. He tried putting as much weight into his driving as he refrained from adding excessive pressure to the gas. On the streets, he struggled to maintain that weightiness. Starting a little too early after a red light, or perhaps it wasn't worth the fence. Only God knew. He breezed through the city with no trouble. It was a shame there wasn't anything to obstruct him, reveling in the thought of something hindering his way before returning to the hopelessness of the inevitable. At another light, he turned his gaze skyward at the megastructures to have a religious weight crush him. Staring at them was the only way he could feel a kind of sublime transcendence in this urban body. Otherwise, he would have had to travel to Switzerland to inspire a similar sensation. If the task demanded him to go to the Vatican, he would have despaired immensely, but not in the way he would have desired. His way ensured the response he aimed for would achieve the correct emotion needed to evoke what he craved. Besides. He was convinced that she played an important role in the evocation. Away from the center of town, down a lonely street, he came upon a decrepit building squatting low in the dark, surrounded by a forgotten construction fence that barred it from the inertia of the neighborhood. It was an old community pool that lost much attention in the preceding years. There wasn't anything magnificent in its appearance, but still, the structure managed to serve as the means for what he found in it. In essence. What he needed was a place far enough that required a need to travel and also allowed him to perform the task in solitude. Luckily, he could possess this abandoned property for his own gain. He parked the car at the beginning of the street so that the weight of the approach could be performed with ease. Out of the trunk, the bag digs into his spine, feeling satisfied as it protest woe into the curve of his back. At the fence, he heaved the bag above the acicular top fearing it would puncture and slit an incision along its leathery surface. He squeezed through an opening and continued with the sack's contents pressing against the walls of their bondage. Ahead, the building fell silent in its place, waiting like a dead capsule to be buried. Near the exposed entrance, he glanced at an abandoned crane with its ball resting just around the corner, blanketed loosely by a soundless tarp. Past the entrance, the innards of the building were left exposed as nature's leavings came to litter its surface. Leaves and dirt clung awkwardly onto the decay of breached walls and dangling fixtures, moss being its most common occurrence, expanding and growing along its corners and edges, thanks to the structure's natural dampness. Before him, he saw a dirt trail proceed beyond the view of the hall and found his dirty feet in step with it. Upon reaching the pool, he gave his eyes a second to adjust. On the ceiling, small openings allowed waves of what little dark light there was to enter, giving off a soft ambiance to the room, making traversing a bit easier without the help of a light. Below the holes, dry watermarks stained the floor, along with the grime and muck resting in the linear crevices of the tiles, creating a diseased pattern across its surface. Looking over the wide bowl, reminded him of the time an overabundance of moss nearly plagued its surface. To his right sat a railing that fell down the wall of the deep section, which was where he needed to be. He found the dip oddly sunken, but felt glad he had such a depth to work with, allowing his actions to remain secure and hidden. He descended the shallow railing to its end and stretched his arm, letting the bag drop below, intact, instantly shattering the silence. He gained the pool's edge and swept around the rim to the shallow rise where he could reach the deep end safely. Before the fall, he used light to peer into the damning darkness below. In one corner there rested undisturbed a group of ash that suspiciously resembled the shape of a casket. A round black smudge lingered on a wide tile area on the opposing side. A well of sadness touched him gently where he stood. He didn't like seeing them especially the former, but he stayed his gaze for as long as possible, trying to ingest their lingering forms and the meaning that preceded them. After a solid minute, he heard the echo of a scraping as he fell down the gentle slope. He gripped the sack, dragging it over to where the scorched tiles idled and took out a small bag before dumping the contents of the large onto the center of the mark. The linear wood collected neatly in one pile as several non-conforming pieces set themselves apart on its fringes. Opening the small bag, he brought out a bit of kindling and a pocket-sized can of oil, setting them down before the pile. He sprayed a dab of gas on top of the kindling, cleaning his hands afterwards with the edge of his shirt. Then, he pulled out a cheap lighter from his pocket and thumbed the switch a few times before it ignited. He stood in waiting, For what, he wasn't sure, but had several particular notions as to what could, or at least should, happen. This was only a brief moment, for he didn't want to hesitate lest he betray his stoic conviction, and with a steady hand, he stretched out his arm toward the kindling, and the flames immediately caught, spreading in no time as the flames blazed strong within the core of the pile of crosses. Near his foot, he picked one up, careful not to let the wood splinter into his hand. It was crude looking, feeling shame he didn't spend extra time polishing it further. He wished he had added another week sanding each and every one of their edges, rubbing varnish into their cracks to make them shine, but he wasn't willing to put in the extra work nor did he want to inhale the toxic fumes, especially when they burned. The quality of the work didn't matter as long as the evocation wasn't disrupted by petty detail. Looking at the pile, his heart ached to see them burn, and he was pleased with the feeling rising up in his body. In his soul, he didn't wish to burn the idols, which no one else compelled him to incite, but he failed to think of anything greater worth setting alight, their image best representing what was possibly the only meaning in existence. To him, it wasn't about sacrificing his labor or the time it took to produce them. It was ultimately to show his willingness to give up God. To be clear, he was relinquishing his faith in a clean, dutiful purpose that the future had in store for his being for something that suited his understanding better and that he had to show his willingness to abolish what was truly important to himself as well as any person. But he sensed it wasn't enough, there was a pain within he needed to feel, to replicate as much as he could to grasp the thing or a small measurement of his existence as it lays beyond consciousness conceived notions. The thought was somewhat absurd, but to think God was omniscient felt like a betrayal of the fleeting truth, yet there was a falseness to his apostatizing, being deeply aware that it wasn't something for him to perform, but the power he felt towards those crude pieces of wood wasn't less than what he made out of them, burning in that pyre. Still, it wasn't enough to let him get what he wanted. Looking at that pile raging freely, he felt like a fraud, less of a servant of God and more of a slave to his mind. It is difficult to add God to everything, for imprinting his vision to the role of life, cradling it in the actions of man's cause required faith. That he felt was the only thing that made the sacrifice remotely possible, but it would have fed his heart the same way God's justice did and the karma that lies in the silence that the universe creates. As the fire began to nibble the edges of the crosses, he turned away to dwell near the pile of ash in the corner, the blackened skull fragments of the head where only the jaw rests intact. He grazed at it with his fingers as if he knew who it belonged to, but thinking about it took his hand away from its reality, for what did he know about her? It seemed as though he knew everything, having organized the pieces back into place. Followed the clues and assumptions to where her completed image rests now firmly in his mind. But still, it remained hollow, the same as that broken silver pendant of hers. He threw so much into her, and she gave so much back in return. Their relationship was a strange one, secret from the rest of the world, with all the wrongness that it implied, but still, he burned her all the same, and here her ashes remain in the fading image of God which she desperately grasped with pneumatic hands. She was truly devoted to him. That was the first thing she told him, yet he loved her despite it. He had an incessant need for the twisted things in life, and she didn't flush green with sickness, and he loved her more because of it. No judgement, no inquiry into the matter of that existing mindset and its genesis within that great shifting desert, just himself. And when she was present before he, so too was God. That of course didn't turn him into a man of faith, especially in the Christian sense. He was still a man of his own will. He saw him in her face, a little distorted. He shied to admit, but the features seemed lucid and clear. It was enough to convince him of his presence in the gaping blackness of the universe. And so, to better understand. He pondered the nature of God and spent countless hours studying, reading the so-called Good Book, keeping both of them out of reach of the sheepening crowd. He wanted to learn what he could about God, yet he realized how little we did know about him. Then he knew his form wasn't right, something about his appearance was shrouded with the darkness that only humans could manage to produce. The Islams knew better in their attempts to refrain from blasphemy, managing to alienate themselves from his face, though less so compared to Christian art. The ancient Jews of antiquity, reveling in their mystical freedom years away from that approaching dogma, glimpsed the roads for which his glory flowed along the tree of life. He regretted burning her, missing the beauty in those features. Yet something did happen. It was hard to extrapolate the nature of the experience. It was as though something divine had decided to reveal some part of itself to his restless gazing, as if responding to something he spoke out loud. He didn't know what exactly it was that inspired the divine to shift its gaze onto this woman's burning. To this day, he still couldn't figure out what it said. When he started burning crosses, he thought an all-encompassing eye had rolled over to his corner, which is why he kept on with it. Now after years of the same ritual, Its potency seems to have faded in its sublimity, or reverential form, if there ever were, to begin with. Yet hauntingly, he felt the grin of some bastard entity take pleasure in his ritual, which prompted the continuation of the act even if the meaning never came to be. Turning back, he watched the final dance of the flames sputter out onto nothing as the room fell into the same darkness as before. The pyre lasted for several hours as the flames diminished, he tossed a few crosses that escaped on top of the gathering cinders, ensuring nothing was wasted. As the heat set, he used his bare hands to scoop up as much ash as he could back into the bag from whence it came. Outside he opened it onto a patch of grass, beating out as much as he could before heading back to his car. Peering back, he noticed how much of the building's face had already been smashed when he first outlined it against the darkness. The ball waited patiently for the resuming motion so it may take pleasure in finishing off the miserably weak structure for good. One time, proceeding back to his car, he stole a peek inside the crane's cockpit and was amazed the keys were still in the ignition. He had long since forgotten where they slumber. Catching the sight of his vehicle, his feet abruptly stopped in the middle of the street with a sack dangling in his grip. The glow from the lamp washed down his body as the darkness swirled around, unable to penetrate the shield. He liked how the night enveloped everything. He had taken a sick likening to the darkness when he was young and kept it close to his heart, finding peace within it. Then, right at that moment, it was as though the night was at its most beautiful, and he wanted to stay with her. So he turned away from the sight of his car, He strode in the opposite direction, the bag resting under the eye of a halo of light. After passing through a few streets, Jay felt a force disturb the atmosphere. Looking around, he could only catch the inviting sight of shadows in their corners as they spread easily between the borders of light, not one of them resembling the idea of a fleeting figure. He knew to trust his instincts, especially at night, when the world resembled an all-around hiding spot. This situation reminded him of when he witnessed a lone ghost wandering the streets near the pool. She was solid and plump as a peach, though her limbs were long and gaunt as she stood over six feet tall, her skin radiating an affable hole that begged to be stroked. It was enough for him to believe there was life still in her, yet when he approached to better see her face, the air began to tremble with an intense boiling that threatened to set his arms alight. He didn't run but quietly backed away. The aberration never noticed him, and he never saw her image again. Now he feared the presence of another tempered spirit. This one had acquired a taste for contact with the living. Even though he had been situated with their existence, he lacked any sense of preparation. But the spirits would never acknowledge him enough to warrant a chase. Already he felt the spirit's dark semblance pressing against his back chilling his spine as he contemplated the results of the ghost's attempt to gain his flesh. He decided to rest at a bus stop, knowing the presence was near. An advert stood over him on the outer wall of the shelter, its attractive features illuminating half his body, outlining him cruelly against the dark. Much of his concerns were forgotten as he silently read the timesheet perched on top of a pole. According to the list, It would take another hour or so until the next bus came around. Though this didn't factor into anything he was planning, despite the creeping sensation making tracks along his spine, he felt a kind of remote safeness with the shelter between him and the spirit. Yet he knew it was a matter of time before the presence overtook the barrier and seized him with its cold hands. Still, he waited a few more minutes before continuing onward. When he was back on the sidewalk a few feet away from the shelter, a pale gaze locked onto the small of his neck, causing sweat to break out about the area. He suspected something else took note of his lone figure and was trailing after him, likely by fate. Still, he scarcely enjoyed being in the presence of a chance wanderer, person or other, when he was trying to bathe in the beauty of the night. Around the next corner he slipped aside into cover holding his breath and waiting. A few minutes later, a figure halted before him gliding silently from around the corner. It was a young man in his late teens with a strange look on his face. All about him, Jay glimpsed darkness shrouding this kid from head to toe, distorting his features, making them seem hidden and remote. Across his face, a veil muting his looks causing his expressions to appear non-existent unless he decides to let one loose. The overall impression was inhuman beyond normality. For not even in Jay's most estranged, delirious mirror gazing did he witness such haunting features within himself, though he has glimpsed a few. But what struck him most was the enveloping stillness gripping the youth's body straight to the bone. It took a while to notice, but when Jay settled into simple tranquility, his awareness fell on the kid's breathing, or the lack thereof. Then a few moments later, all of a sudden, like the kid was remembering something he had learned long ago. The air swept into his throat and his chest quietly resumed its pumping. After a few breaths, the kid turned away in what Jay saw must have been bewilderment, heading back the way he came. Silently coming out of cover, he watched the form of the kid shrink as he washed over the street. At that moment, he couldn't help but stalk this haunting aberration that resembled a person and the means driving it. At a distance, the kid was far different than up close. He seemed normal yet moved with a swing that was careless and dreamlike. If he wandered into a crowd, he would have been absorbed completely into its mass until the hour struck and he found himself awake in his home. But out here in the night air, his motions were devastating to glimpse, for each step he took was the march of the dead, inching closer to that beautiful oblivion that Jay knew well. For this reason, he found himself trailing this peculiar character a person who was closer to the brink than he apparently was. He wondered what kind of circumstance would make this young adult turn this shade of nihilism. It was no question this remote figure was empty of faith, but what of his reason? Nothing in that aimless stride of his conveyed a betrayal of man's philosophical conditions, but he was close. The kid stood completely still every now and then, lost in some distant fantasy. Jay didn't need to put himself out of sight, for the kid's back was always before him, giving full view to these moments. From a different vantage, he focused on the kid's chest expanding away from his person, and then, as if a switch had been turned off, he became still once again. Jay counted the seconds, following minutes, until the kid dared to proceed in breathing. The kid did this several times during his walk, and it chilled Jay every time to see his motions recede right in the middle of the sidewalk, seizing all manner of life for one instant. In those minutes the kid would sway on his feet, ready to fall before his lungs began sucking, followed by a gentle cough, and he would pass on through the world just like a specter who hadn't forgotten his fleshly instincts. Jay didn't know what would happen if the kid prevented the act of breathing altogether. Would he die? Or would his body take up the condition it was familiar with doing, leaving him unconscious? It was scary to think that your chest would willingly go with that kind of conviction, where all at once, like a subtle reason was fading away, and you were left to pick it up only to find that you were the cause of its absence. Coming around a corner, Jay was shocked to find the kid had disappeared from sight. He shivered with horror, feeling as though the situation had reversed itself, and it was now time for him to be stalked as before. After several minutes of panic searching, he was relieved to find the kid down an alley and rushed to catch up. From the young man's profile, he witnessed a different color come over the kid's gaze as he stared long at a house before proceeding into its backyard. Peeking around the edge of the garage, the stout house leaned with the decrepit hunch of a deformed person, exceedingly desolate in its nighttime appearance. Still, it resembled an old man holding up on bad crutches with arms trembling in their failing strength, like it could collapse if peered at wrong. The only thing keeping it stable was a pity if not its pimply plaster that gave the structure a sickly complexion, like the boils of one infected with a disease certain to cause death. About the back, the yard posed in disarray, needing to be touched up. Weeds grew wild and plenty while the grass grew tall and strangely in round clusters about the bare ground. Various equipment sat in their corners without any sign of current usage and hidden behind a bush between one side of the house and a disheveled looking fence where some of its boards leaned rebelliously was the rattling of the exterior air conditioner unit. He saw a movement across the window overlooking the yard believing it to be the outline of the kid. The back entrance on the side of the house sat silent without any agitation or commotion having triggered its crusty hinges or motion sensor. Inside echoed the same remoteness with not a single light switched on as if someone did not wish to disturb those still breathing inside. Instantly, the figure disappeared into the darkness leaving the air to simmer to the proliferating hums and buzzing of the night. Nearly an hour later, the kid was spotted walking down the front street. Jay invaded the yard, stumbling slightly as he treaded the patchy earth, trying to keep the kid within sight, avoiding a faceplant while vaulting over the fence dividing the front from back. Then, in a few minutes, he resumed his steady pace like before. The kid, deaf to the ruckus, made in Jay's attempts to stay on him. As the night continued, they paused at another house, far different from the last, where the kid gave it an intriguing look. The fog in his irises swirled until they parted to reveal the unsteady life within them, ready to evacuate at the drop of a hat. His eyes gleamed as they invited a multitude of highlights to dance on its surface, suggesting something was coming. But nothing did. Watching, Jay knew then the kid was past the point of tears if he hadn't been up to now. At that moment, their faces as well as irises matched in color and tone. They resembled one another in the shared experience of the significant other, like twins having known each other since birth. Jay felt a density weigh on his chest as if the lump of coal was shaken for the first time in years, making itself known. Suddenly, he was swept by a drive of emotions that risked crippling him to the knee. His hand grasped his shirt as a moan rattled out of his throat. The kid turned toward the commotion, but by then, everything had settled, and the haze rolled over his eyes as he proceeded along the sidewalk as if nothing had happened. Some time passed before Jay guessed their due course, unable to conclude where the road ended though several prompting ideas had him gripped with concern. The kid rolled onto the homeless part of town where it housed much of the city's seedy characters, wondering if this was an attempt to shake him off. At this hour, everything was dead as the streets lay bare before them. Jay wasn't even certain what would happen if one of those seedy characters tried to contact the kid's pockets. At a loss for what action the kid was likely to take, in all likelihood, nothing. From the way he carried himself, he expected the kid to be empty of anything important, save for what little faculties he had streaming through his head. But then, when they went down one particular street, Jay was sure a wallet was bulging out of the kid's front pocket. They went on before stopping again. This time in front of a stacked building. It was a shop of sorts, from what Jay could tell, which had closed off its availability to the eager customer. Yet his sixth sense was elicited as the building went about comfortably in the hovel of the street, not one ray beaming from their lamps. Then, an unexpected motion came from the screen door as it swung carelessly, nearly clipping the kid's nose. Behind the frame, an unmarked figure remained engulfed in a thick shadow that would not betray one feature of the anonymous fellow. Following a suspicious glance from the kid as his head swiveled about the street, the space between the figure and the door opened up, allowing the kid to pass through, disappearing into the void within. Jay furrowed his brow as the minutes passed into the coming hour. A terrible breath snaked itself around the street, disrupting the calm of his flesh and causing it to erupt into pimply hives. With it, A damning curiosity tempted him to steal a better glance at the show, though it was suspicion that hastened his speed. Standing in front of the building, another wave broke out that abolished his composure. His body was taken over by a wash of adrenaline, spiking his thighs in quaking anticipation. He couldn't tell specifically what it was that filled his loins with fear, but the sight of the structure's exterior, steady in its archaic figure, didn't help to dissipate the tensions it put in him. It seems its business attire gave way greatly to the true features surrounding it the closer he drew. Up close, its intentions fell into place, or had been, used during the day, as it housed a picture of modesty, but from his vantage, nothing suggested it to be currently in use. The large rectangle above the door was bare of markings and the beautiful screen windows were tinted, rendering the interior unreadable, especially in the dark. It hinted in subtle jabs of what may lie beyond the glass is the proper business held in practice, but it was anyone's guess regarding the general service or tone. Turning left, the building angled around to the back alley, where he noted a metal door marked out by a lone lamp. The contrast was haunting enough that it gave the frame a nightmarish appetite, yet in the difference he was able to understand the element that gave him a hard lump in his throat, which threatened to snuff out his life. All along the surface was a coating and a likeness akin to that which shrouds the kid. He didn't believe a similar shared veil could encompass an entire building's surface, let alone part of it, but he couldn't shun this cover he was witnessing. And worst of all was how deliberate it seemed to him, like some witch's spell wove its magical threads together, netting what was to remain untouched by mortal hands. Temptation pushed him to test the lock on the street door, but fear and deadly vertigo prevented him from even staring at it. The knot in his throat ensnared his heart, squeezing the life out of his courage and sending signals down his legs, ordering them to take flight. Yet, he refrained from the command, for curiosity had snagged him, wrapping itself tightly round his skull as he wondered what it was specifically that grasped him. The conclusion of the stalk filled him with dread and anticipation, as all its foreboding raised high before his eyes. He tried deflating those concerns through his deductive reasoning in part based on the kid's yet-to-be-known intentions, which were shrouded in such cryptic causalities. Still, everything in his manner spoke of death being that final act, and for that alone, Jay remained so that he could prevent any attempt and quit his worries, and the dread that rooted in his bowels before sailing home to spread his worries to the base of his bed. Stretching his awareness, it encompassed the completeness of that squad building, as he realized the amount of digression that had filled his pondering failing to spark an answer regarding the mystery holding itself at the core of this black shop. He wondered if some witchcraft was afoot, figuring the kid to be a warlock, but no. Despite what he thought, there was no element at work here that classified itself as either witchcraft, wizardry, or miracle-making. Then it hit him. The presence of the otherworldly dwelled at this juncture, at least some part of an ascension. It was godlike or perhaps God himself touched this place. It didn't quite add up in the latter sense, but still, a celestial aspect had found its way into this corner of the world. The intent in his staring, pushing against the sickness that tried to cocoon him if he dared invade the veil, his eyes watered profusely against the strain trying with all his might to adjust the vehement shade like it was blinding him. Pressing exorbitantly beyond, he could understand what the woman down in that abandoned pool had the look of. Appreciating it wasn't the face of God. The kid had the touch of it, mayhap even been to it, if not having insight into the being that had groped around the void. His anxieties melted away as he drank the sick cup of ecstasy, for the violent wall had weakened, allowing him to access the interior of the building and meet the things that housed themselves in this questionable establishment. But before he could start, the screen door parted with the kid swinging on its hinges. Separating himself from the structure while using the full embrace of his arms to support an overlarge paper bag. Unable to process the bag, the kid walked away from the shop with a speed that Jay mistook for vigor, and as he did so, the curtain that veiled the building suddenly failed sufficiently, releasing the spell it had on Jay's mind and body. He was dumbfounded at the phenomenon but didn't have the time to properly assess the causes as he immediately followed along, determined to see this journey to its end. It was nearly 6 when Jay noticed that the sky began turning the navy blue of dawn and was anxious to be in the bosom of his apartment. Yet he trailed onward, keeping the kid in his sights, the two staying behind the ridge that held the night. As the sky brightened in color, he noticed the R about the kid fault slightly, like the sun was chasing the specter of nihilism out of his person. Despite the threat, the kid did not quicken his pace, for he was in no rush, as though either confident in having timed his arrival, or feeling secure in the clarity, showing the two of them arriving at this point and that it would all come to one glorious perfection in the end. Jay was led to the outer borders of the town, where abandonment and desolation defined the spread of the land, expanding into the largest area he had ever seen. All around, dirt and stone rested in peace alongside vast mounds of gravel, while bashed columns stood partially erect or leaning to, with rusted wires breaching past the skin It was a quarry of some kind, he guessed, built around the destruction of some vast property that once had a purpose but was being scrapped for the latest project if there ever was one. For all he knew, it was destruction for profit's sake, causing something inside Jay to shiver. He placed the property somewhere on the city's border where the sense of the wilderness began encroaching on the nostrils but not far enough where urbanism couldn't exist as nothing but a concept. The line between the two impressions blurred as the space ceased to embrace either one instead synthesizing them both, stretching beyond into a territory all on its own. As soon as Jay set his feet upon the property, it became hard to stay quiet as the bits of gravel announced his every step. It took time for him to get his footing right, as they were prone to sink and slide on the jagged edges of rocks or the loose surface of the sand, especially without releasing a sound, but his caution gripped the gap between him and the kid to widen. He was worried he might get left behind, so he abandoned his stealth and stayed on him. Behind a mound, Jay glimpsed the last remnants of a declining structure, possibly the last one within a hundred miles. Its appearance lay striped, redacted to several faithless stories supported by a few well-placed but crumbling pillars erect against the destitute surrounding. The kid was bearing directly onto it. The kid was like a drone, precise in his steps, moving as if the earth could not air him. His eye was steady and true as he grasped the vision, one magnificent in its glory. For once, he fixed his gaze on the lacking structure. The rest of the world was dead to him. It was as if not even the possibility of a misstep or trip on some large precarious stone was a concern in his mind. But by this point, the debris hardly hindered them both as the fall risk had decreased. This was a familiar sight to Jay, for the kid's gesture had the touch of absenteeism common among the sheep that attached themselves to those soul-called holy places. It chilled him to see this kid as a vacant vessel, for he was the perfect pawn in some eccentric cult. The thought of the kid in the hands of a community of devoid and submissive characters made him want to steal and lock him up where no charismatic leader could manipulate or corrupt his fragile state. Whether the kid was a participant of some devout group was a mute question compared to the enigma surrounding their agenda, but when he gazed upon the kid's determined motions, the reality shattered, for he stood in a cult of his own, and he was their prophet. At this moment, the kid was like a champion, a knight for some greater lord, barren in his hidden powers. But out here, there was no god, or anywhere if Jay was to be bold. So what was here worth giving all your attention to? Surveying the land, Jay glimpsed at scattered bits of pebbles and occurring rocks, identical and infantile, hardly mattering in the complete scope of the place and the gentle touch of air which stirred the dust off the lone stones. If he peered long, he would have tasted the nectar of the cosmos, even the precise molecules that comprise its contents. Still, in all of it, he saw nothing. Of course, these were something even far and wide including the measurements his brain attributed to the phenomenon, but that wasn't what he felt. There truly was nothing to this place. He sensed it most on the line of the horizon. The two of them were on edge, and the kid was heading straight for it without hesitation, the barren knight going to meet his barren god. Jay's pondering inevitably came around to the bag embraced by the tender folds of the kid's arms and the components that waited within, but for what purpose he was soon to find out. As the derelict structure loomed, Jay felt it was like a precipice opened up to the expanse of the void. Once up there. He had to tip his head, and the below would become above. Was this the end, truly? Was this Jay's final chance to turn back before meeting God, the real, or other? This line of question disturbed him, not because of the outcome, but the meaning that hid behind the burnings he had done up to now. After all this time, God, or something else, was about to reveal its prodigal image onto his humbled soul, now that he, it, was within reach. Inside he couldn't help but be somewhat disappointed, for all his actions seemed futile in provoking this being, inspiring only a glance, a meager look, not even wrath. It was as if all intention was gone the moment that boy materialized out of the darkness. He felt barred from his own will and his determination was falling back against the walls of chance and absurdity, the one thing he desperately tried to escape from. At that moment, His head started to spin as a ring of laughter circled the summit of his crown, leaving him like she did, lost to the reduction to which all forms must transition to be accepted back into the contentment of the universe. But then, he was allowed to see the face of someone greater than that who joked around humanity's conscious woes. He even inspired the idea that he truly coaxed the reveal, having cast his line in that far-reaching pond for so long. He liked the feeling of his own designs, Stirring this prodigious being to notice him, and the significance bestowed upon his worth. Even if there wasn't anything truly worth noting, but to achieve that and not be the result of providence was empowering, it made him feel strength in his abiding spirit. Ahead, Jay outlined the stairs leading up to the structure and took to it with seal, hoping that he was about to be shown the way to godhood. Reaching the fifth level, he silenced his painting. Exhausted from the long ascent and creeping forth like a rat, Jay found cover behind an intact pillar. Between it and another hanged two dangling murky sheets of transparent plastic that acted as looming doors to the chamber beyond, their surfaces dusty, adding another layer to the thick haze. Already seeping through, a dark glow caused the shadows to dance in an uncanny, balletic display of motions that produced the most haunting effect on his mind. As he parted a corner, The dark glow washing over his face, he hoped there wasn't enough of himself being exposed, but at this juncture, his voyeurism was lost on the kid's attention. Standing over a pit made of shattered cement blocks and other broken debris was a tiny blackened shape flickering with life like an open flame, but not in a way that one could call it such. Glancing at the curious commodity, he wondered how something so black could replicate a glow found in the brightest of suns. It was blacker than the space between the stars, its composition seeming less material but possessed a devastating force if left unchecked. Also, if this puny substance was temporal, it truly was a doorway to another reality from which contact could be made with that enigmatic entity. Its form was currently at a minimum, though it produced an expanding aura that, if enlarged, would swallow both of them and the entire quarry, along with the city and the rest of the world. Towering over the pit, the kid's profile was poised and serene, as if unaware of the potential threat to his flesh and soul. Rummaging in the bag, wrestling soundly on the floor between his legs, he grasped a handful of some dark kindling and tossed it into the pit, the black flame expanding to swallow the kindling whole. Inside, Jay saw the unusual bark dissolving into nothing, not even leaving ash to simmer. It devoured each piece it was given its girth growing steady as the kid fed it its last bark, but still, it didn't shape up to be the kind of destructive giant he feared in its potential. As the darkness reached the borders of the pit, he bent towards the bag and drew out a chunk of black wax and a contorted Arabic lamp, though it didn't quite resemble one completely. Holding the wax over the pit, surprised to see it instantly liquefy, he used the opening on top of the lamp to collect the drizzling bits on the kid's fingers where he held the candle blisters festered as the intense heat from the pit brought the lamp's metal up to flesh-searing temperatures jay figured it was to keep the wax from solidifying yet the kid was unmoved by the rancid smell and third-degree burns damaging his nerves which were likely incinerated by now hence why his features remained firm soon it was all in using it like a supple teapot he began tracing geometric shapes about the floor once it was empty he discarded the lamp with the flick of his wrist turning back towards the bag. Jay watched it skip across the broken cement and clear the edge, falling off into the void, expecting a faint metallic clamor to ring out, but nothing punctured the silence. He turned his attention back to the pit, witnessing the kid draw chunks of unidentifiable raw material from a small leather bag, placing them at measured points on top of the wax. Jay couldn't describe it, but the otherworldly quality of the traced symbolic figurines and alchemical matter frightened him beyond his darkest nightmares, for they couldn't disrupt his sense of reality. His pores shined with a gleam of sweat, attributing it to the strange heat building all around the space, Not wanting to confess his growing fears unsure of what exactly was unfolding before him. Having set the last of the materials from the pouch, the kid scooped up the paper bag into his arm, brought out seven cubed cages and set them at specific points around the pit's circumference. From a distance, he observed a black outline squirming within the bars of the cages. Jay refrained from lingering on their repulsive figures, for their wriggling emotions churned the contents of his stomach into a maelstrom of sickness. The final object raised out of the bag, leaving it limp and discardable, was a flask, shaped in the most complicated manner going beyond what any glassblower could have blown, let alone be conjured from some madman's artistic fever dream. Eight chambers comprised this glass figure, which at its center housed a clear liquid along with a few tiny trimmings floating in its substance. Standing before the heat of the pit, the kid fondled the curve of the delicate crystal giving off an erotic play, like he was caressing the humps of a voluptuous woman, feeding off the preliminary tensions as the ritual commenced. Jay was surprised at the tone of it all. In his mind, He expected something similarly satanic like a jar of blood, the head of a goat, a dead snake or even some devilish candles along with a few pentagrams drawn on the floor instead of those disgusting symbols. But everything presented thus far was exceedingly unaccountable and less evil inducing than what could have been conceived. All around, faces started to appear within the leaping shadows. Each one a mask of pain that haunted Jay for the remainder of his life, with their empty sockets. They peered down at the kid before the pit, with the black fire fluttering uncontrollably. Then Jay started to hear it. Drums. Darker than any sound produced by an instrument molded from the thickest of animal hide. Yet unparalleled in its resonance, not even the fullest and grandest taiko drums from Japan could incite such a deep frequency as those he heard. And like the best drums it penetrated your chest, as they certainly did. Only it felt as though it was smashing your soul to pieces making your insides feel vulnerable and delicate as China. At first, he thought it originated from the pit, but it panned and moved, seemingly popping out of thin air that lingered about the space. Jay's head swiveled on the ball of his neck, trying to catch the sound with his eyes, desperately seeking a source, but there was nothing to grasp. At the corner of his pupil, he glimpsed a movement by the pit. The kid motioned toward the first small cage with the contorted flask in hand, bobbing his head to the beat already caught in its trance. He crouched down, setting the glass aside, and lifted the first cage. He unlatched the top and dumped its contents into his hand, tossing the cage beyond the traced wax symbols. What Jay saw made his blood run cold. A hunk of flesh slithering around like a freshly dug up worm was lying in the middle of the kid's open palm. It was alive, so to speak, gyrating around helpless in its attempts to escape the smooth contours of the kid's hand. It had no eyes or features that made it seem natural or animal-like. It was a misshapen wad of nothing, but undoubtedly alive. Keeping his hand open, confident it wouldn't fall, he picked up the glass configuration and dropped the fleshy monstrosity down the tube into one of the empty chambers. Then he went over to the next, and threw the following into a different one. Moving along, the kid went around to each cage and relinquished some of their prisoners. While doing so, the pounding increased in volume getting thicker. The kid was pleased by what his ears heard, eager to have the dial turned up. The pounding caused Jay much pain, starting from his ribs, then working its way up through his throat and into his skull. Feeling the shell begin to crack, he held his chest and cuffed his head, while trying to maintain their shape as best he could through the expanding thunderstorm, all while wondering if the kid felt the same sensation. Looking on, the kid dropped the final creature into the seventh chamber. Having rounded to the head of the pit, the center roared on with energetic anticipation, sensing what was to follow. The kid raised the flask high, arching himself backward and threw it head on. The black flame opened up, pleased as it tasted the crystal texture, ingesting the glass entirely, preserving the whole of its content. Inside the flask bobbed like it was suspended in water, perfectly sustained in a stasis of absolute purity. Then. The liquid inside started to boil and a poisonous looking gas slowly filled the center chamber. The creature's disgusting flesh pulsed normally, unaware of the gas developing before them and its threat to their being. In a few minutes, all the liquid had evaporated, floating soundly about its encasement. Then, an unseen mechanism triggered, causing the gas to dispense into the surrounding chambers. When it touched the creatures, they began shaking violently, releasing a chilling, inhuman scream from the fold of their hidden vocal cords. Jay's jaw seized up as the high pitch cut through like a thin needle of light, piercing his eardrums along with his eyes, nose, tongue, biceps, genitals, and even his urethra. Forcing his lids open, he observed the creatures as they twitch in spastic motions, desperately throwing all their weight against the glass, trying to smash the walls of their torture. As the gas lingered, their flesh boiled and slid open turning a beat crimson in the process, with liquid running like a stream down their bodies, steadily collecting beneath them. At this rate, if they didn't suffocate from the gas or bleed to death, they would certainly drown in a pool of their own blood. The cries continued for half an hour, yet the balls of flesh still lived on. Jay felt their pain, and would have even without the ear piercing wailing, yet all the while the kids stood over them, eyes already distancing themselves from the reality with each nod. It was like he was deaf to their cries, and pleased for it, for he was listening to the ever-encompassing destructive drums hammer out a pleasing, yet haunting melody. At one point, he did stare at the center of the fire, but he didn't witness the agony going on. He observed the suspended glass as if it was a clock telling him the time, eager for the final. Taking his eyes away from the pit, the kid looked up as he took off his shirt and unzipped his pants, leaving him stark naked. Once he was nude, his body gave more of itself to the beat, his knees flexing, his chest heaving, and his arms swinging wildly at his sides. Before Jay, the black fire grew fiercer, causing the creatures wailing to increase in pitch, along with the hardening of the drums like cooling steel, increasingly sounding less like drums than a collective of sledgehammers slamming against the walls of the structure, fearing that it would crumble if it persisted, or that the bonds of space were being broken through. Either one frightened him, A moment passed and the kid began circling the fire, spinning and stomping his feet, adding his strength to the enveloping sounds of hammers and mallets. His face was in a state beyond joy and pleasure, leaping and throwing himself around the pit, giving more and more of his energy to the heat. Above, the shadows danced along with his movements in an interpretive orgy of emptiness that was impossible to actualize by the mere absence of human bodies. Then, in the kid's madness, he dared put a hand in the pit and when he pulled it out, pale blisters littered the reddened arm, but he showed no signs of feeling toward it, peering at the peeling flesh. Jay watched with unimaginable horror at the sight of the kid's arm. He was in a suspension of shock that made it impossible for him to flee, his fears mounting as he held his breath in anticipation for the kid to throw himself altogether into the burning pit or perform some other act of bodily mutilation. A part of him wanted to stop this annoying ritual, but felt paralyzed to do anything, pinned down by the body-piercing screams and hammers bearing down on his person. He was utterly helpless in the face of this darkness, but still, he didn't perceive evil in this, as if it went beyond the concept of abstract ethics and moral judgments. It stank at the kind of nihilism that reached the cosmos and pierced your crown with a pickaxe shattering you in the world you knew into shards that ripped and seared at your naked flesh, that hooked in, and never released its grasp. That was how he described it, as if his explanation fended off the presence of the void itself. If only a little, yet still, he couldn't fight it. Nothing could hold back the encroaching damnation that trapped him and fed this boy's lust. And at that moment, Jay felt the emptiness inside try to numb him, as he watched the horror show bloom, finalizing into his darkest premonition. His skin was drenched in sweat as the heat increased. He felt like a sizzling pork skewer on the inside of an oven. He wondered if those fleshy creatures were feeling a different set of heat far more acute than what Jay had experienced. Then just as the room was ready to erupt in flames, the space was suddenly empty of any perceivable temperature. And as the heat vanished, so too did the crushing hammers. The atmosphere felt cleansed of any impurity lingering about the vicinity. After what seemed like an eternity, the torturous screams ceased. Their pain filled to space with the vacancy that was unfamiliar to Jay. Everything was pulled to the pulsing waves within the pit, the kid aiming his awareness at its restlessness and the swirling contents inside. Even the shadows stilled as they dipped closer to the center of attention. Where once the grotesque balls of flesh rested now sat a pool of repugnant, liquid substance. It swirled with a brownish purple coloring that made it look like excrement while also appearing sickly, with clumps of pus bobbing along the surface. What was worse was the smell that escaped, for when it stretched past the kid, not giving any sign or reaction to the stench and the Jay's nostrils, he instantly threw up. Gaining his composure, he turned away from the spot where he vomited and stared at the kid, expecting to see dark eyes on him. But to his surprise, the kid stayed his gaze on the pit. He wasn't sure if that meant the kid was aware of his presence, yet it didn't matter at this point, for at that moment, his aching limbs pounced forward, racing towards the boy, ready to steal him away from his conviction. Then the glass shattered, sending tiny shards doming all around, lodging pieces deeply into everything encompassing its radius. Jay got caught in the explosion feeling a multitude of tiny slivers boring into the front of his body. The pain was excruciating, causing him to fall to his knees, screaming in misery as if he had wandered into a field of livid jellyfish and they stung him all at once. Again, the kid did not budge. Despite being closer to the blast, remaining composed and without creating the smallest of sounds, raising his bloodshot eyes, he noticed that the kid had stopped breathing and any other kind of motion unclear when he became motionless. Then, as if finally becoming aware of Jay's self, the kid turned around to face him. His body was covered in the glass's disgusting substance and plugged with a million tiny holes. His flesh was shredded as bits of the tissue showed for all, along with some exposed bone. His face was all but gone, and his eyes looked as though they had melted, perhaps from staring at the pit for too long. His stomach had torn open entrails dragging to the floor as fluid drizzled from incisions along the wall of his intestine. The kid's mutilated body and the rotten smell nearly made him want to vomit again. It was as if he was showing off how much destruction he could handle. Despite the dismemberment, he stood erect and still as a corpse, waiting patiently for the cue. Then Jay saw an eerie substance peek out of those tiny holes. It looked like the kid's blood had begun to seep out, but it wasn't. At first, it was hard to glimpse. Then, as its motions became distinct, he understood it was something with the motion of blood, but had none of its characteristic gloss, having a shine but was like a coating on a surface that was far too fleshy to be otherwise, as the substance drew across the surface of the kid's body, coming first in drops, then in mass. Its appearance was hellish. All over, fleshy orifices and appendices blinked, twitched smacked, stretched, and pursed in a hideously malformed and contorted manner, swelling in ways to which he found many characters among the mass, like a horde of monsters become tangled and fused into an abominable beast. Jay witnessed something running out of each orifice. He couldn't tell if it was spit or urine, but the drooling suggested hunger in most of those holes. The kid was nearly covered in the deep crimson substance in a few short minutes. Jay turned to himself terrified the same thing might appear out of his flesh, but as he stared at his hand, he saw nothing but black holes. He peered deep into those newly made pores in his palms, tilting them back and forth slightly, swearing he could see a glimmer deep within, twinkling with life. Then he felt a chill crawling along the canals of his body, making him break out into a shiver. Around the holes, the flesh blackened, showing signs of frostbite while inside. He felt the shards numb his core with a cold touch. About a damp creeping came into the atmosphere cooling the air to freezing temperatures well below zero. On the surface of the space, frost caked in corners as icy fingers crawled along the surface of the concrete. As his breath condensed into white puffs of smoke, he rubbed his shoulders desperately, trying to inspire heat on his whitening flesh. Instead, the chill traveled farther along the roots of his arteries, inspiring a frigid winter to find a home in his body. The kid remained still on his feet, his back to the pit, and the red mass having ceased running, sitting on his flesh steadfast and appalling. Some of its parts were frozen solid as they reached the floor, which produced such a repulsive effect that strained the limits of Jay's comprehension. Out of nowhere, the kid moved slightly, turning away with a grin on his face. And the instant he began, the drums resumed their thundering rhythms. They sounded different than before resonating in such a way as if they came from caverns hidden away in the deepest places of the world, untouched by the most seeking of men. Its frequency was unknowable, yet primal, straight from the depths of humanity's past, haunting in its bleak reverberation. As they boomed, Jay noticed something flow from his ears. Dipping his fingers, he knew instantly it was blood. The kid danced on, disturbing Jay in a manner beyond utter foulness, His motions had no grace in them, no art. The explosion crippled the kid but that didn't stop him from enjoying himself, jerking and heaving his limbs around the pit in a way that made him look desperate. The appearance was too much for Jay to bear. With the flesh exposed and the multitude of holes about his body, the swaying of his intestines and the red mass of flesh giving to the gravity of the kid's spastic movements, it overloaded his mind. He tried convincing it that this was a man. A kid about to transition into adulthood, and not a disfigured corpse being dangled like a mannequin on a string. Still, the vision before him formulated too well as he was ready to break down and cry. Tears began obscuring his sight, and through the swelling he glanced at the kid stopping between the black flame and himself, and with the last of his strength, he jumped through to the other side, falling flat on his face. For a moment, the body rested. Then it reanimated as it stumbled into a standing position before Jay. Then, right then, he began to disintegrate. His flesh sizzled and boiled into nothing as his face contorted into a landscape of emotion that was humanly possible. It was unreadable and monstrous, confusing as to the meaning behind its inventive features. Yet all Jay could ask was why, why in all of heaven the kid chose this fate? But the longer he gazed at the kid's extinguishing flesh, he knew why. His tears fell like a waterfall off a cliff of anguish, his nose running with snot entering the soundless cave of his gaping mouth, and his eyes reddened with the sting of despair. He looked like a man in the grips of a melancholy he dared not know. Then unexpectedly, the kid spoke in a voice that sounded like he gurgled a heap of rocks, struggling to form a vowel. Hesitating as if unsure of what he meant to say, then, as his throat began disappearing, he spoke with all the clarity he could muster and managed to mutter, May that night be barren. After that, the kid was gone from the life he was once a part of and the future he chose to abandon. The pit lingered for a moment before snuffing out for good, leaving him in the cold, completeness of the void.
0: I hope you enjoyed a barren night and a night walk in oblivion as written by Ragoon X24 and performed by Ken Samsel. Ken Samsel is an aspiring voice actor slash youtuber from Okinawa, Japan. Being bilingual, he is always searching for the next voice acting opportunity, whether it be in English or Japanese. As for me, I'll be right here next week. Now, our weekly descent into the depths has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight, and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host of the evening, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week, When we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams.